Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, your host, Michaela Thomas. This episode is a deep one. In this episode, we look at not just what's going on within you, your internal pressure to be perfect, to be the super mum, the superwoman, but also the external pressure all around you. There is so much in this narrative of what a woman should be. And today's guest is an expert in this field. So we will think about why the bar or what it means to be a good father is set so low, or why the bar for being a good mother is set incredibly, ridiculously high. So no wonder that you may internalize that pressure and put it as your own yardstick of what would it mean for you to be a good enough mother. You might think that I've done a lot of episodes around mothering and motherhood more recently on the podcast. Now, I am a mother of two myself, and I struggled when I first became a mother. I put so much pressure on myself to be perfect. But also, I know that there are women out there listening who are not stepping into motherhood, not considering having children, even though it's part of your value system, part of your hopes and wishes for your life, because you put so much pressure on yourself because you're worried that you will mess up, that you won't do a good enough job with it. And I don't want that to be the thing that stands in between you and motherhood. So I'm hoping that these different guests I've been bringing on is going to help you soften that inner critical voice that tells you that you're not good enough. And we're going to have some really interesting discussions today about the pressure of the patriarchy and how women always get the shortest straw. We're also going to think about the anger and guilt trap, a vicious cycle that persists also because you have this big gap between the idolized and toxic view of yourself as a mother versus the lived reality, where you lose your shit occasionally. And we're going to think about maternal regret, this idea that I shouldn't have become a mother because maybe I'm not the mother I want to be. And we're going to think about values versus shoulds and actually being guided by the first one rather than the, the second one. We're also going to think about how to deal with judgmental comments for your choices, not getting caught up in these mummy wars of shaming and comparison with other people. Your way of parenting is good enough. And to my help today, I've got a fantastic guest called Sophie Brock. Dr. Sophie Brock is a motherhood studies sociologist and mother living in Sydney, Australia. She provides analysis of motherhood in our culture, exploring the ways individual experiences of mothers are shaped by broader social constructs. Sophie supports professionals, business owners and creatives in revolutionising what motherhood means in our society and how individual mothers are supported and understood. Sophie's offerings include self-study courses for mothers and practitioners, her podcast The Good Enough Mother and her Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification Programme. You can also listen to an episode of The Good Enough Mother podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, on it. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. 
Now let's get on with the show with my guest, Sophie Brock. So welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Sophie. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And we started this conversation by just acknowledging that we both have had to arrive in this space a little bit, uh, thinking about our other responsibilities, being with our children. You know, it's morning here and evening for you. So you were doing bedtimes and I was sending my baby out in the buggy. So we were already acknowledging how our brains are pulled in multiple directions when we are mothers, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. We're always kind of showing up in a particular way, in a, in a particular context and with a particular background in mind of what we've just left and the space we're moving into. And, and that's part of what I, I kind of love about this space and this work and, you know, the conversations such as the ones we're having, having that we get to all show up as ourselves and we're not kind of hiding these compartments of ourselves away, you know, shutting, shutting our motherhood away in the closet, pretending that we haven't just been dealing with our children before showing up here. Mm, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because then you want to be there with your children. You you know, that's part of our value system uh, as mothers as well, to to give care, support, kindness to them, but then also about that sense of other value in our lives. You know, we weren't just blank slates before we became mothers. We also had other things that gave us worth and value. So we're hoping to dive into that a little bit today around the social construction of motherhood and thinking about worthiness and all the, the pressures on women to be perfect and I think you know this is one of the topics you speak about a lot around how women are pressurized to to see achievement and success even in motherhood uh, and that there's actually prices to pay from that so there's a lot of richness from our conversation today so let's let's get started before before I lose my train of thought again um we were saying that it's it's hard not to be a little bit frazzled when you've done other things just beforehand Mm-hmm. So I wonder if we can start there by thinking of what does it mean, the social construction of motherhood? What does that even mean in plain language? Yeah, it it sounds like something really intangible, doesn't it? And like, what does that actually mean for my everyday lived reality? Um, and so this is why I draw on an analogy that I think can be helpful in explaining what I mean by the social construction of motherhood. And acknowledging too there's a whole body of literature academic literature and research and maternal scholarship out there so this is something that I am drawing on and and have developed and I think it's really important to acknowledge the lineage of maternal thought and thinking in this space and I think that's reassuring for us as mothers too to know that this isn't something that we've just started talking about as a kind of cohort of mothers if you'd like throughout history but it may be something we're hearing about for the first time in listening to this podcast conversation so just knowing Um, that there is a lot of research and theory and evidence that is sitting behind us. And I think sometimes that can be legitimizing in some ways of some of the challenges we experience as mothers. Um, But the analogy I draw on is that of a fish tank, um, which I know sounds strange because it's completely separate to motherhood, but bear with me. Um, So the idea behind this is to visualize and imagine a round glass bowl, and that's our fish tank. And what that represents in this context is our society. So we are the fish inside as the mothers and we're swimming around doing our mothering work, our paid work if we're in paid work, navigating our relationships. We're living our lives within this broader context of the fish tank, the fishbowl. And this is actually applicable in all different realms of our lives, not just motherhood. We're always living our lives within context. But how it's relevant for us as mothers is that we're swimming around within a culture 
that has written up on the tank particular rules and ideas about what it means to be a mother. And we've been swimming around in this water since we were children ourselves, right? Our socialization into what actually does it mean to be a good mum? What does it mean to be a perfect mum? That doesn't just start when we become mothers. We've kind of been trained into that from a very early age, sometimes subtly, sometimes not. Um, and so what it means is that when we become mothers, we, we're not, as you said earlier, arriving as a blank slate ourselves either. We have all of these preconceived ideas around what it means to be a mother and who we'd like to be a mo- be as a mother and even uh, our imagined children, right, of, of what that may look like, what that relationship may be like. And so the social construction of motherhood in a really kind of simple way is to describe the context that we're living within, the culture and the norms and the values and the shoulds that are imposed on us and that we impose on ourselves when it comes to reflecting on our role as mothers. And I think that's really helpful because that's something that's been a long time coming for us, you know, is decades of socialization of what are you going to be like when you become a parent? Uh, and I think what you touched upon there of also, what would it be like with our relationship with our children? And what happens if we we get a child who we actually clash with? You know, the personality clashes with ours or we have similar negative traits and we, we uh, fight. Um, one of the things you talk about a lot is the the rage of motherhood, you know, the anger and the rage that's not fitting with that image of the... Uh, of the Madonna, of the sort of serenity of motherhood. I wonder what, what does that look like in the fishbowl? You know, what, what norms and rules have we been told about anger and rage as mothers? Yeah, so I have a concept called the anger guilt trap that I think can help explain this a little bit because when we are kind of swimming around in this fish tank, we're doing our mothering work, most of us don't know that we're within the tank. And this is a big motivation and drive behind my work is actually kind of opening conversation about this and building public awareness of the social and cultural context that we're living within because part of their power is that they are invisible. Because if we don't know we're within this fish tank and we don't know and we can't explicitly see the rules that we're living by and that we're judged by from others, then it makes it really hard to do much about it and we individualise all of our struggle with it. So if we don't feel as though we're meeting the markers of what idealized motherhood is for us, we blame it on ourselves and we carry that weight on our shoulders. Like we should be able to do it all. Or I wanted to be a mother. I I should be able to handle this. Or we might compare ourselves to our own mothers um, and want a mother in a similar way or completely opposite. And so we're using that as a tool of measurement. We compare ourselves with other mothers around us with uh, particular images that we hold in our mind of who we would like to be. And so where within this context that has a lot to do with living in the gap between the idealized version of ourselves, of our children, of our relationships, of our lives, and the reality, the lived reality of what that actually is. And that gap there is, I think, really toxic and is where a lot of guilt, shame, anger, and rage um, can sit and come from. In the same breath, I also want to just say that not all anger, rage, and guilt is necessarily toxic. But the anger guilt trap that I that I started mentioning is when we have internalized this idea of the ideal mother or the perfect mother myth or the super mom, we can kind of talk about it in different language. But it's the shoulds, the pressures of, of how we feel we should be as mothers. And really importantly to note, a lot of those ideals are unattainable. Uh, there is no mother in the world that is able to tick off the boxes 
that qualify us into perfect motherhood land. Like it, it doesn't exist. We will all fail or fall short in some way. Um, and when that happens, we can then take the blame on ourselves. So what did we not do good enough? What could we have done better? Again, sometimes this is useful when we've mothered in a way that is outside of our values, but when it's not useful is when we're kind of berating ourselves with the shame and guilt stick that has actually been inherited from our society and culture. And so what can happen, look, I don't know if, if listeners can relate to this feeling of, you know, tucking your children into bed at night and reflecting on a moment that you had in your day that you feel some guilt over you feel like I I didn't show up there how I wanted and I feel awful and sometimes we can have really dark thoughts and feelings about this as well of maybe I shouldn't have been a mother or maybe my children deserve someone better than me or maybe I can't show up in the way that I want to maybe I don't have this within me some even talk about maternal regret of maybe I shouldn't have become a mother and we can promise ourselves in those moments of self-questioning you know what I am going to try and do better I am going to try and do more But what that can do when we're living within this context of the fish tank is that that can place extra pressure on ourselves. And I think of it as almost like a a boiling kettle sometimes. And when we're turning the heat up constantly, that doesn't necessarily have ourselves holding ourselves to higher standards. It can be putting more pressure on us, which is actually counterproductive. And so what can happen is that that pressure builds and builds and we will be met with some sort of trigger in mothering. Um, Probably, you know, every single day there are ways that we are challenged and pushed and that is not only because of our individual experiences and our childhoods and all of the stuff that goes on for us individually, um, but it has to do with lack of cultural and social support as well and economic hardship, a whole bunch of other things. And we can basically get to the stage where we're bubbling over And it's where the rage that we've been suppressing, the anger we've been suppressing because good mums aren't angry, right? According to the perfect mother myth, we meet that part of ourselves and that is where we will yell or behave in a way that is actually not conducive to our values or the way that we want to mother. And then we feel terribly guilty and this kind of cycle can continue. So that's the way that I kind of situate and place anger and rage within this conversation. It not only is a taboo and it not only is certainly not part of idealized motherhood but actually the shame associated with rage and anger is part of what keeps us swimming around in this tank not knowing we're within it mm, so there's an extra layer that gets placed on top of it through that shame that the guilt that we can feel about having not showed up in line aligned with our values but what you're explaining there is also the pressure to do so actually i wonder if that's sort of the becomes a paradox that the more pressure we layer on ourselves, the more likely we are to explode. And again, we are back there at the anger. Is that what you mean with the the anger guilt trap that sort of almost becomes a vicious cycle? Yeah, it does. And I think I think it's useful. I try I try and pull apart values and should sometimes because I think sometimes when we're talking about anger and guilt, they feel like quite yucky emotions, don't they? It's like I don't, I don't want to be feeling angry or, or guilty. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. But both emotions, like if our aim is to try and get rid of them, we will always fail because we're human beings and we experience the broad range of emotions uh, and emotional terrain. And I, even though that's quite an obvious point to make, I think that sometimes people forget that mothers are human beings. We're not caricatures of an ideal, and so. 
for us to go, actually, the more that we are able to allow ourselves to be human, the more agency we have in exploring what our values actually are. And that's when guilt and um, and, and even anger can be really useful information for us and, and tools for us to come into greater alignment with our values. Um, but yeah, going back to what you've just said there, Michaela, I think that uh, anger is a tool for our own self-regulation. It's the way that we police ourselves to try and fit within the idealized image of motherhood that's held on a pedestal in our society and culture. Um, and there's plenty of others that do it for us too, through through shame, through judgment, through expectation, and all sorts of other pressures that mothers are put under. But certainly um, we also experience this self-pressure ourselves. And I think a lot of the time that manifests through guilt. Mm-hmm. So no wonder that we are in a pressure cooker where we're running the risk of boiling over at any point. I'm hearing a lot of things there happening, listen to you for a bit now, sort of things happening internally within the mother, within the individual, and things happening around the individual. So you're talking about context in this fish tank. I wonder if we can tease those apart a bit more, because when we spoke on your podcast a little while ago, feels like a lifetime ago, we talked about how I do a lot more around the individual pressure, but the more I work with women who are perfectionistic or very ambitious and have this pressure, the more I feel like I need to think more broader, you know, around the woman, the, the patriarchy that we exist in. So I wonder if we can think a bit more about the external pressure. What does the patriarchy have to answer for when it comes to this idolized motherhood? Yeah. So again, I, when we're talking about patriarchy, we could be talking about, um, you know, listeners may have in their mind lots of different things when we say that word, and it can feel quite intangible as well sometimes, I think, too. Um, I think that situated our experience as individuals within a broader context, even outside of motherhood, can be really useful. So just reflecting on all of the ways in your life you've experienced particular kind of legs up in terms of privileges um, around your ethnicity, your race, um, your parents, your parents' educational background, um, whether you are able-bodied or not. You know, our society is set up in a particular way for a particular type of person to be more likely to succeed, you know, in I'm using air quotes here. And so some people have more barriers and obstacles than others. And and that's uh, that's why it's important to have this conversation around our social context and socioeconomics when it comes to supporting mothers and thinking about ourselves as mothers within this tank and within the broader culture of motherhood. How you were mothered is going to have a really big impact in how you come to think of yourself as a mother and show up as a mother what sort of educational experiences you, you have had has a really big impact. Whether you are queer has a really big impact, not only in how you show up, but how people perceive you. You know, I could probably spend the whole podcast episode talking about the different kind of identity markers and different ways that we're situated in this tank, in different positions within the tank. But having some awareness that it's actually not all on you as the individual mother. Um, I think self-responsibility can be really empowering when we have the context and the support and the tools and the environments for us to be able to do something with that. I think it's an important part um, of this work because we need to have some sense of agency, right? We need to have movement within the tank and say, okay, how can I make a change in my life? How, How can I actually transform my experience based on what I can do and not relying on others? Um, But I think we have that conversation after we have this first conversation around understanding what context we're living within, 
what constraints we're navigating. And ultimately that invites a lot more self-compassion because we, we can't compare ourselves in the same way anymore because whoever we're comparing ourselves to has likely lived a very different part and journey to, to what we have. Um, I don't know if that answers your question really, but I, I suppose the other thing I would add is that um, I have a model called the Pyramid of Maternal Regulation. And what it, it is in simple terms, if everyone imagines a pyramid, you know, like a food chart, um, and down the bottom represents our own childhood and at the very top represents the shame and guilt we feel as mothers. And the idea of this pyramid is through each stage of our lives, from our own childhood into our own adolescence, our movement into young adulthood, and then our matrescence, our experience into journeying into becoming a mother, um, and then into, well, who am I as a mother? How do I compare myself against other mothers? Where do I find a sense of belonging? How do I situate myself in relation to work? There's like all different stages of this, but all, each of those steps from our childhood upwards is impacted by the social context that we're living within. So it's really hard to actually separate, going back to your question, it's really hard to, to separate the individual and the, the broader social context because they're always going to be speaking to each other. They're always going to be intertwined. Mm. And I wonder if you can go into that a bit more, you know, the maternal pyramid, um, because these are some some of these topics are maybe new to people. They may not have heard the term matrescence before. It's been brought up on the podcast before, but for new listeners, do you want to just dive into matrescence a little bit more so they understand what that means? Yeah, sure. So um, matrescence is a, con a concept kind of held within the space of motherhood studies more more broadly as an academic discipline. So I'm not an expert in matrescence. There are people who study matrescence specifically and there will be therefore different um, conceptualizations of it. But in a, in a broad sense, um, it's a term that was originally coined in the 1970s by Dana Raphael. It's a term that's been used interdisciplinary. So from like anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists, and what it it is signaling is the transition that we go through from being non-mothers to mothers. And um, so Dr. Aurelie Athen, who's extended on Dana Raphael's original work, conceives of it as matrescence is like adolescence. So we have this stage where we go from being children into adults and we have a sense of reverence for that, that experience. And we know that there are hormonal and biological changes that happen, changes in their social context that will happen with adolescents. Um, and there are whole you know, fields of study and, and areas of support. Um, recognizing this is a really tender time, can be a tender time and a, sometimes a vulnerable time, an empowering time, a time of self-discovery. Um, and it's the same for, for mothers, understanding that the transition we go through, and often I think when I say transition we go through, we're talking about the immediate postpartum or the first one to two, one to three years, but we could even broaden this out bigger and say, well, potentially in some ways we're always in transition because our children are always growing older. Um, so who we are as a mother to our baby, then to our preschooler, you know, then to our school-aged child and to our teenager and to our adult children, like we're always experiencing this sense of transition. So recognizing that I think can sometimes lift the weight off a little bit in thinking that we have to get this right or we have to be able to kind of nail down who we are and, and how we mother and how we show up in the world because it, it will always be changing. Um, and that's impacted not only by our own individual journey and, and our children, of course, but 
Yes, again, by our broader context, you know, no better example of that is the last couple of years of the pandemic and all of the ways that that has changed how we individually mother and experience our motherhood. Mm, absolutely. And it gives us the permission to continue to learn and uh, to grow and make mistakes and fail and then go back to the drawing board and discuss and learn and tweak. Um, you know, I find that it can be difficult when you have more than one child. You know, I've obviously had my second child six months ago and people will say, well, you're a second time mum, so you've got it all figured out. Well, at the same time as me having the second baby, which obviously is a different baby to the first baby, they're different individuals. So there's lots to learn there. I also became a school mum, you know, my oldest started reception. So that's a whole different thing of learning as well. Like, well, how do I fit in the homework? And what are you supposed to discuss at the school gates? And there's always learning. And I love this concept of matrescence as sort of similar to adolescence because we do, do give a lot of allowance around that period of growth for our children. And I wonder if that we think of that as a matrescence is also a period of growth. You know, there's, we know that that even affects our brains of how they, uh, in the postpartum brain is, is uh, changed after we become mothers. So there's that biopsychosocial way of thinking about coming into motherhood. And you've mentioned uh, self-compassion a few times. I wonder, in your, from your experience um, of working in motherhood studies, how does self-compassion help with the guilt, the shame, the anger, the, all the stuff that we sort of just discussed? How does self-compassion help with that? Yeah, so I'd have two responses to that, and they may sound completely opposed, but I, I, I think that they can tend to fit together. And this is something I try and do a lot in my work is straddle nuance and be able to articulate that because there generally isn't one answer that is going to apply to all of our experiences. And so when it comes to self-compassion, I think two things. One is that we can't self-compassion our way out of structural barriers, constraints, and institutional failings. So we can't self-compassion our way out of misogyny, out of racism, out of the fact that we do not have enough money to be able to feed our children. Um, I think that sometimes when it comes to the rhetoric and, and the important work, mind you, of um, mindfulness and, and individually focused um, responses to some of the challenges that we face in motherhood, um, I think it's always really important, again, to come back to being able to hold both the individual and the social context and knowing they're intertwined. Um, and so to not be, I'm always very mindful <laughs> mindful of, um, of trying to make sure I'm not dismissive of an individual mother's challenge and struggle through suggesting self-compassion because may not actually be that useful for her in those moments and it may be really invalidating and we have enough of the experiences in motherhood of feeling invisible unseen unheard like people are only interested in what we have to say because of how it affects our children um, I think that we need to center the mother in these types of conversations and responses to whatever she's currently facing in her experience on the other hand, though, I think that self-compassion, when combined with self-reflection around identity, that's where, when I say identity, I know that can mean lots of different things. In this context, I'm talking about self-worth. Um, I think self-compassion in connection with self-worth, with the broader holding of identity, that's where we can make enormous changes in how we individually experience motherhood. 
Um, so I talk about, and this is drawn on the work of Professor Andrea O'Reilly, the concept of saying, well, we can live an empowered mothering experience. We can swim through that tank in a way where we are able to navigate obstacles that come our way. We are able to cultivate resilience. We are able to cultivate connection. And we are able to live in a way that is honoring of our agency and the important work we are doing as mothers in raising the next generation of human beings, whilst also living within a fish tank that in many ways is disempowering and and marginalizing. Um, It's going to take decades of work to change the tank and the structure of the society and culture we live within. Uh, So what I want for mothers today is to be able to understand their context and then say, all right, how can I actually do something in my everyday life that will help me in moving through my mothering experience in a way that feels more empowering? Um, And that's where I think the tools of self-compassion and and getting support as well in reflecting on self-worth and and identity is, I I think that's the key. That's, That's the way that we do it. I think that's very important because a big part of compassion in the way that we think of it in the UK uh, in Professor Gilbert's um, work, Paul Gilbert, is to think of the deep wisdom and insights that we have, you know, understanding ourselves and the world around us is a part of compassion. So it's mm. impossible to be compassionate with yourself without first acknowledging how hard it is to be marginalized or how scary it is to not be able to feed your child for the rest of the, for the, rest of the week. So your examples there are very important of how these barriers and constraints can't be just magically conjured away because you say well I'm I'm worth loving um so I think that's very important of how we go back and forth in between the individual and the societal and I think that's that is the nuance and that's why most psychologists I know when they're asked these big questions they go well it depends yeah I really resist giving these sort of clickbaity answers like here's the three steps to owning motherhood or whatever because it's it's so complex and the more I hear you speak the more I feel that that is definitely the case you know we obviously have decades of research that you're referring to so this is not just um, an Instagram post that's going to make everything better but if we were to give some elements of hope to anyone listening is there anything we can do anything that we have power or control over even though we're consistent you know consistently in this societal pressure as well what can we do to start to let go of some of the guilt or start to break free from some of this sort of anger guilt trap? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. And um, your framing of, of self-compassion, and it reminded me actually, um, I answer your question, but it reminded me too of the conversation around gratitude, right? Like this, the ways that we can't gratitude away pain or um, context, but then also the incredibly powerful ways that gratitude is a tool for opening and unlocking ourselves in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. So yeah, I I love the nuance and I agree with you that we can't kind of explain away um, these really big and and important and very, very personal topics in clickbaity type of content, which is why I love podcasts. But at the same time, don't we, like we also have this challenge of making making information accessible. And Mm -hmm. so, so many of us are, you know, we're both mothers of young children running businesses. Like we're, we're busy. We're really busy. And, and mothers who are listening, I imagine are pretty time poor and are probably listening to this podcast while doing other things. And we want to also take away tangible tools and things we can do. So the first thing I would suggest is, um, actually writing out a list of all of the things 
that you think make up what a perfect mother is. So this doesn't necessarily have to be in thinking about your own experience of being a mum, but just think really broadly. Like if you had to describe to an alien on another planet in your current context, what's who is the perfect mum? What does she look like? What does she do? And really challenge yourself with that list to get at least 15 to 20 things on there. Um, some people I've worked with have had pages and pages of things there and can be quite specific as well. Um, because this isn't just about how a mother acts, it's how she thinks, how she feels, how she loves. I mean, it, it is about every part of us, about how we look. And so first, actually get out on paper, what are you working with in terms of your own socialization? What have you actually absorbed in terms of the cultural messaging around motherhood? And then the second step is to go through that list and for every single one, question yourself, every single point that you've, you've written down, to what extent have I internalized this belief about motherhood for myself? So to what extent am I judging myself according to this marker of success of what being a perfect mum means? And there are some things that are on that list, on the original list, that no matter how hard we try or we work or how much we do, we will never actually fit into that box because it, it may be completely outside of our realm of experience or identity. We just, we just never fit into that. There are other things on there, for example, you know, the nuclear family, the idealized mom lives with a husband and her two children of different sexes, you know, like there are various variations of that, but how many children are too little? How many are too many? How young is too young to become a mother? How old is too old to become a mother? How did you become a mother? Was it intentional? Was it not? And like, there is so much we can pull apart from this. So to go through and go, how have I internalized this or not? Um, and then the next step is where we do that, that values-based exercise of going, well, what do I actually want to keep? And what do I want to let go of? What's really important to me in my mothering experience and does make a difference in how I would like to live and lead my life, the example I'd like to leave for my children. And what can I actually start to release? What can I actually start to let go of? And just that one exercise can bring about a greater sense of consciousness and awareness of the bombardment of social and cultural messaging that we receive on a daily basis, but are usually, usually not that conscious of. It, it kind of happens unconsciously a lot of the time. So bringing some intentionality around that. Mm, and it's really powerful to think of how it's so in, unintentional from other people as well, that it's not necessarily with the intention to judge that people drop in their comments. Uh, and one of the things I see a lot is in working mothers, you know, everything from when they return to work to how much they work, um, how available they are, if they are doing the school run or not. And it's it's difficult because if you think of the, the pressures for, for the mother as a woman to do um, everything, that what happens if we then also uh, seeing more men in that space? Then you know men also get the these judgment around how they're not they're not the mother. So if you are someone who has more support, and we're talking about obviously hetero couples here, cis hetero couples, but that's the experience I hear when I work with couples that it's hard for the man to be let in because of the societal pressures around that this is the woman's job. I wonder if we can touch upon that as well of how. How do we break free of some of these things when we ask for support, when we ask for someone else to be let in? And then other, especially other mothers can, can provide judgment around that choice. Yeah, look, there's, I think there's a few elements to unpack 
um, when it comes to that. One is maternal gatekeeping. So the sense that actually when we've been socialised and raised within a culture that puts motherhood both on a pedestal of saying that's your way of achieving full womanhood, like that's what you do in order to be successful. You you have children and if you don't, there is something wrong with you. Why, why wouldn't you want them? You're going to regret them. We have all sorts of rhetoric about that. Um, and so when we're within a society and culture that reveres motherhood on the one hand and on the other hand completely denigrates motherhood, we kind of get a little bit stuck as mothers because on the one hand this was supposed to be a self-actualizing experience where we kind of tick the box of achievement for ourselves and everyone else. And then on the other hand, there's self-erasure involved in what is the perfect mum. It's that you are selfless, selfless. You know, you step back, yourself steps back and you are there to serve your children. And so it can be quite threatening for our sense of identity if we haven't done this work of unpacking the perfect mother myth, if we have a strong sense of identity attached to this idealised motherhood and we go to draw on support and we may be struggling, right? We may actually really need the support and we kind of know it, but it may feel really uncomfortable because um, on some level, it's a kind of threatening to our understanding of who we are in the world and what our role is and what our purpose is and what our function is. Um, And so that's where practices of maternal gatekeeping, which is pretty much uh, kind of asking for the help and then the help isn't done in the way that you want. And so you just either undermine the help, say you don't need it anymore go in and redo it yourself. And there can be those sort of tricky dynamics and relationships that can play out. I think too, as you mentioned, the judgment from others around, well, why is he doing that? This is the mum's job. Or um, a lot of mothers may receive kind of backhanded compliments about how lucky they are that they get to just step back and don't do as much as, you know, as they have to do because they've got these involved dads or whatever that conversation can turn into. And then I think there is also the element of men being quite um, revered, right, in terms of what it means to be a good dad. Um, The bar is so low for what it means to be a good father socially that often it's just about being present, whereas the bar is so high for what it means to be a good mother. There's such a disjuncture there and it can be very frustrating and for men as well when they're going about fathering and, and parenting but are seen as performing some sort of special and rare act And that can be quite insulting for men as well because there's the presumption they're incapable of care work. So I think there's a lot to to unpack there. I don't know if you had any questions or anything you wanted to pick up on, um, but I know I haven't addressed mothers and judgment between mothers at all. So we could also go there if you'd like. Mm, no, let's do go there. I do, I do like that because it's one of those things where we think of women supporting women, but how easy it is to also hear women having been judged or criticized by other women for some of these choices guided by their values. Yeah. So another concept that I teach is called the gazing guard tower over maternal power. And what this is essentially about is that, again, I'll ask listeners to to think of something visually that you have, uh, again, it's a, a round circle and This is kind of like a metaphorical prison. I know it's probably not the best metaphor to use, but it's drawn from the work of Jeremy Bentham and Foucault about power. And the idea is you have a guard tower in the middle because when you have a guard tower in the middle, it can see around the whole prison. It can see around the whole circle um, and keep a a watchful eye on what everyone's doing. So this is how power works in the social construction of motherhood. And that guard tower in the middle, that is patriarchy, right? Or the 
that is the kind of the ruling power and the ruling ideology of what idealized motherhood is. That's the area that sets the rules. Again, it's intangible. I wish we could just point to one person and say, hey, it was you and let's change you out for someone someone new. But the the tricky part of this is, is that that guard tower surveillance of judgment lives within all of us. Because when we are within this prison, and there have been social experiments around this as well, totally unrelated to motherhood. Um, but when we're in this structure of society and we we eventually absorb and take on the rules and we start to police ourselves according to these rules. So we could chuck a big blanket over that guard tower, the central tower. We don't need the guards necessarily watching us because we've taken on the rules of our own. And that's where a lot of the mum guilt comes from. But the part that I'm getting to about comparison is that we not only police ourselves according to these rules, we police other mothers according to these rules. So this is serving of many different functions, but one is actually self-preservation. Because if I go and I see another mother who is mothering in a way that is in the antithesis to how I'm mothering and is completely different to how I'm doing things, that can feel really threatening to my sense of self when I have that sense of identity so entwined with what is idealized motherhood. So is that making sense? There can be this comparison that goes on, and this is the so-called mummy wars. That comparison is actually a key part of the social construction of motherhood being maintained. Like we need that judgment in order for this social construction to be maintained. And that's why I'm so passionate about talking about this and calling out examples of mum shaming and judgment and division between mothers, because it's not serving us. Um, Healthy debate is awesome. We need it. We're not all going to agree around how to mother or how we would like to mother, but always being cognizant that there are conversations happening around power in our society that is not happening explicitly. Um, And I tend to think of it, and it may be optimistic, but I tend to think of it that actually, if we focus more of our energy, not on critiquing other mothers and judging other people and judging ourselves, that's really energy zapping. But if we actually spent our energy on ramming this metaphorical tank, right, if we started collaborating with others, supporting other women, becoming more comfortable in our sense of self and identity and our choices when it comes to mothering, we can start really creating waves and making movements to start creating cracks in that tank, to do motherhood differently, to do it in a way which is serving of us and our children and our families. And knowing we will get pushback from that because Cracking that tank is threatening to others who are comfortable with the status quo of how things of how things are. But this is how social change happens, right? It is a form of resistance and change. And so just being cognizant of that, I, I guess, in when we experience those daily interactions and judgment, that oftentimes it's actually not about you. This is a broader uh, social pattern that's playing out. Mm, so powerful and I can really hear your passion coming across when you speak about this as well this this is your this is your life's work this is your purpose which is obviously part of what we talk about on this podcast but this backdraft is something we experience as well when we think about starting to take more compassionate action for ourselves and where we're in a context where that's frowned upon then there's the same pushback so it can be really really difficult to start to carve out your own space as a mother or as a worker or as a whatever. It doesn't mean that this is just um, exclusive to motherhood. But when we are in this fish tank, I love this metaphor. 
then that backdraft can be that we do get backhanded comments. We do get people saying, but really, um, should you be doing that? Um, I'm sitting here now spending an hour with you doing something I'm so lit up by doing. I find this so interesting. And when I've finished a podcast recording, I step out and I return to the joy and bliss of my life, which is my daughter. She's just utterly adorable. And I return refreshed. I return feeling like I've nurtured a self, a facet of myself that I don't get when I'm with her. And that is not existing in a bubble. You know, when others find out that I do this, there's judgment, right? So I'm using this as an example to make this a little bit less abstract and more concrete that people questioning what I do on, on my maternity leave. This is sort of a keeping in touch hour, if you may. Mm. Um, like, but should you not be wanting to be with your daughter? And she's only so little for once and, you know, enjoy every moment. And that classic enjoy every moment thing is very shaming, isn't it? Because we know that the highs and the lows of motherhood means that we cannot possibly enjoy every moment. That's just not how it works. Um, so how do you then feel when other people give that those comments? And I think you've given me some food for thought to think of how myself and my clients respond to that pushback respond to the oh no don't crack the tank you know when we're actually needing a bit of resistance and rebellion and I'm naturally a bit of a rebel I don't like to do exactly what I'm told so I, that's giving me a lot of food for thought I wonder if we can think about these sort of the the mummy wars that the shaming and the comparison what can people do then if they've kind of found their own north star or they've, they've done this exercise that you gave us earlier around sort of questioning the the narrative questioning the internalized perfect mother myth and they're tuning into what really matters to them their values and they've decided to make some choices what can they do then when there is this pushback yeah i i love that example you shared with us and that's really really common and i know very relatable um and i've experienced i've experienced similar comments and people will also mothers will also get it the other way um in terms of not going back to work, again, I'm using air quotes because mothering is work as well, but um, not going back to their businesses or paid work in some way. Uh, and this sense of, well, what do you do all day? And don't you get a bit mm -hmm. bored? And, oh, I really couldn't do that. I don't know how you do it. I mean, you can't win. You, you really can't win. There's There are certain social rules and cultural scripts around how long is acceptable to take off. And even the language of maternity leave probably needs to be changed because leave is associated with some sort of break and holiday in it and it's anything but that it's 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 different to that um i think the comment around enjoy every moment it goes by so fast um i know how shaming and even enraging that can be particularly for mums who receive that when they're out in public or they're actually having a really tough time um i tend to pretty much always use those comments as useful reflective information that is being revealed to me about the speaker of that comment. Um, because when I've had that comment offered to me, I can see how it's pretty much never about me, particularly when this person doesn't even know me if they're an absolute stranger. Because women who are out of these early years of mothering, um, there can be a lot of ambivalence about how they lived their motherhood. There can be a sense of regret there. There can be a sense of idealization of what it was like. There can be a sense of minimization of the hardships because it's too painful to actually go there. Um, so I tend to think of those comments like that are often really not about us at all. Um, and they're reflective of the broader challenge actually that we have as a culture 
in being able to have a nuanced conversation, understanding and, and, a, and a space to be able to have these types of conversations. And I, I think that the other point that I would make in response to your question is that when we have found our North Star, as you put it, or our, our sense of actually I'm feeling really comfortable with this, this decision to come and do this podcast interview and have this hour away from my daughter, I am actually feeling really solid in that decision, yet I'm getting this pushback. I think that can be functional in a few ways. One, it can be really useful to actually get us more solid in our position. This is where sometimes I think anger can be useful um, if it rises as a response, because that's also telling you you're passionate about something um, and defensive of your capacity and your agency to choose how you lead your life. No one else is making the decisions for you. Um, so I think that can sometimes be useful, although it doesn't doesn't necessarily feel the best. Maybe we could get um, that same result through a different mechanism. I also think it's really important to be connected with others, though, who are doing this same type of inquiry and work, um, whether that is in some sort of online community or space, whether that's through just immersing yourself in platforms like this, or whether it's about being able to find some in-person relationships that you can foster of others who are doing motherhood differently, um, who aren't kind of towing the, the line that we are fed as a culture of how it's meant to be. Um, and then the last thing I would say to that is that it's not our responsibility to change the perceptions, the judgments of people around us. And so if that's their perspective, let it be. The stronger we can stand in our position and the more solid and comfortable we can get with our decisions, the less that stuff tends to matter um, I've found, although I know it can be really difficult, particularly if it's um, this type of judgments received in a partnered relationship or a very close family member. But uh, yeah, those would be kind of my varied responses to the challenging experiences that we deal with of, of judgment when we're making those cracks in the tank. Mm, absolutely. I, just to add to that, I find that there's an exercise that Brene Brown does around deciding whose comments you want to or need to take on board because there might mm. have been people who are close to you who love you and actually them weighing in to your decision might be helpful maybe that they're seeing something that you are too close to see and so she does this thing where she writes down a list of names of whose opinions that really matter to her whose kind of advice and suggestions she would need to listen to so that she doesn't just run ahead and do things and I find that when I do that with clients, it's really helpful because A, the list is very short of whose, whose opinions really, really matter to you and who, who you need to kind of consolidate your decisions with. And B, it means that everyone who's not on the list, when they show up in your world, when they give you comments, that you can also kind of refer back to yourself, you're not on my list. Not to be nasty or dismissive of that person, but to acknowledge yourself that my decision is my decision based on my values. And this person is not on my list to weigh in. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that's such a great strategy and so practical. And yeah, it's interesting that you said with your clients, the list is usually very short because I was kind of thinking of who I would have on there and it would also be very short. So that can also, it can help us kind of in almost being a filter of the types of messages that we're receiving and to do so in a way that is not necessarily combative. You know, we, we don't have to constantly even defend our positions or the way that we're doing our life. Like sometimes the most powerful thing that we can do is to just keep on keeping on, you know, with our mm -hmm. focus and what we're, what we're called to do. Absolutely. As we're sitting here, you know, you're, 
it's late for you. I've I've heard the odd squeak in the background, um, and I'm just noticing my dad rolling in the the, the pram. Um, so, I think we're just noticing that uh, that shift that the you know the paradigm that we're under, and noticing how we're going to be pulled. And that that to me is part of compassion and mindful compassion as well. Is just noticing how this is pulling you, noticing on what is important to you here, pausing to checking with your purpose, and then moving forward, pressing the play button to be able to choose wisely in a way that serves you. And often that is where we step into joy. That is when we step into meaning and and having a little bit more fun. And that's why I named the, the podcast Pause, Purpose, Play, because it was sort of showing up for a lot of women that I was supporting that they were just paralyzed. They weren't choosing things that mattered to them. They were just doing what's expected of them. And I, I always remind myself of that study of the palliative care nurse um, who was asking people about their regrets on their deathbed. Have you come across that? Yeah, yeah, I heard about that recently. Yeah, uh, I can't remember her name now, but it's obviously um, a few years ago now. But realizing that the thing that people regretted the most wasn't that they worked too much or worked too little, or you know, yes, yeah, some people were saying that I wish I'd spent more time with my children, of course. But most people regretted living a life that they felt was expected of them rather than living the life that they truly wanted. Mm. So I'm just going to leave the listeners with that one, and then we're going to just draw it to a close to think a bit about pause purpose and play for you Sophie you are obviously insanely passionate about this I can hear how you know there's bright sparks flying when you're talking how how is it for you with pausing and resting and recovering yourself what do you do to switch off yeah that's a great question and I think that it's one that we are constantly needing to ask ourselves because I tend to find that the pause, I know how necessary it is for my passion and my creativity, but it's much more comfortable not to pause. Um, and I tend to find it quite um, uncomfortable when I first pause and really just sitting with that discomfort and noticing the, the sense of, well, what about these to-do lists and what about this? And especially um, as a business owner, you know, I'm sure that you can relate like that the to-do list never does end. And for most listeners, probably that's the case as well. Um, I'm also a single mother. And so I have different types of um, supports and, and contexts for that. And have also had some additional challenges with my daughter's health in the last few months, which has required a kind of more intensive input of mothering than previously. Um, so how I pause is actually scheduling in time in my diary for that, because it does not just happen upon me. Um, and an example of that has been I've spent the last four days away with my daughter and my mum and my sister. Um, we just booked a little beach trip away together. And it ha so happened that the place we stayed didn't have phone reception. So again, my discomfort with that initially of, oh my goodness, what does this mean? This doesn't actually feel that good at first. And then actually being able to relax into it and knowing that for me, that's actually not separate to my work um, or my mother. And I see the pause and the rest and my creativity and doing podcasts, you know, like this and, and connecting with people like you, Michaela, and engaging in my work in a meaningful way. That's all connected to my mothering. Like my daughter receives the benefits of all of that. So um, understanding the necessary interconnection of all of those elements is kind of what helps me consciously schedule in those time, those timeouts for, for pausing. Mm, it's really powerful and that connects with our purpose that when we are when we are fulfilled when we are lit up we are more able to also connect beautifully with our children there is a big difference tangibly so than when we do things that fills that self like you said you know being selfless 
uh, isn't necessarily helpful for our children because as a woman, what do I show my now daughter about what her worth will be? If I just do nothing to look after myself, I never pause, I never take a break, I never do things for myself. What do I what do I teach her that, that her worth is going to be dependent on? So I think it's really important to notice that guilt and that shame when we try to pause and take care of ourselves. But also actually when you are lit up, you're showing your children that this is okay to want these things for yourself. And lastly, what do you then do for play and fun? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned around how our children um, receive are, are on the receiving end of the benefits of pausing because I actually, I would, I would expect that when I'm asked this question, I think it's like, oh, do I have some sort of hobby or do I go canoeing or, but I actually have a lot of fun with my daughter. Um, she's four and I just love being with her and spending time with her. And we go on these little adventures together and we explore museums in the city and we create new recipes together. And I actually get a lot of play through connecting with her. And my friends, you know, creating time to just be with my girlfriends of 20 years and and knowing that we don't actually need much. Um, I receive a lot of my input and experience of play in that way through presence ultimately of going, actually, let's just strip it all back and be here and be here now. And, and that's all that I need. So, yeah, that's kind of my response to that question. I, I've never been a, um, I've never been one to have, these like separate ho- hobbies to my work or a pottery and I've considered I'm like maybe I should do something like that when I have a bit more time but I'll think on it what, what do you do for play mm, well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned the word should there that that's part of the narrative again yeah. that we should have to have something away from our children but mm. I mean as a psychologist who you know I've got I'm a behavioral psychologist I look at function if this yeah. is serving you well if you are feeling joy and meaning and fulfillment when you are on that little date in the museum with your girl then that is functional to me you know this then if you think I should be wanting something else then we're going back into narratives and scripts of how it should be so designing your motherhood experience is that well actually I love these little dates you know I love when I uh, teach my son to occasionally break the rules ever so slightly so playful for me can be you know, not just playing, you know, imaginary things or chasing around the garden and things that you think is traditional basic play. But I also love when we do intricate little things like going to the swimming pool and there's a, you know, there's a little health suite where there's a, a tiny room that has a sauna and a steam room and you need to use your membership card. So it's only for uh, members and I am a member. Um, it's a community gym, so it's not the fanciest thing. But he saw me sort of swipe that little card and I said, well, I think it's only for adults. And his face just lit up at the prospect of potentially breaking rule. So he Mm. likes to stand there and shower in the shower and see me through the glass door when I sit in the steam room for three minutes. Um, Because like, oh, what if we get caught? (laughs) You know, that that to me can be a little bit playful because I'm challenging him in flexibility I'm um, obviously if you get told you're not allowed to be there if there's someone else there you're disturbing them then we say oh it's time to go now you can teach to be respectful and kind whilst also softening up rules and being a bit of a rebel occasionally and that to me is really playful yeah no I love that response and I think that the question that you've just you that you've asked me in my response has actually given listeners a really like micro snippet of an example of how everything that we've been talking about can actually play out because 
when you asked me that question around play, that I gave you my honest and authentic response, but I was conscious of how that response would be received by listenership and the expectation of being, well, it should be something like X, Y, and Z, and then going, okay, well, am I questioning myself then in how I show up in this way? So I think that's actually it's provided a really interesting example at the end of our conversation of the ways mm. that we can actually censor ourselves or question ourselves or or think through uh, what is our the truth of our experience when we start thinking about how others will perceive us and receive us. And, and again, like these processes of self-reflection and the noticing of the kind of micro moments, like what you've just described with us as well, that so much joy is in, in those spaces. And I think being in the place of comparison and shooting on ourselves, it actually strips away our capacity to be present for those micro moments when we're kind of in our heads about where else we should be or how else we should be showing up. Um, which I think is, yeah, a beautiful reminder that it can just be a bit of a weight off the shoulders and, and what that can actually open up for us. Absolutely. And it, it's just no, noticing that this goes so fast for us because these internalized scripts are just embedded. It's like running a program on it. It's just always there that, you know, even I had to sort of say, oh, no, of course I teach him to be respectful and kind. So I don't have listeners thinking that I'm teaching my son to mm. be a rule breaker and he's going to be <laughs> impossible to follow authority in school, et cetera, et cetera. It's that so quick, that self-monitoring and self-judgment and self-censoring that happens for us. So I'm glad that we share these two authentic examples yeah. and showing the listeners of, huh, it happens for us too. Yep. We can be really aware of it and it still is going to happen because the <laughs> script is running in the background and you, yep. no, neither you nor I can can just demolish that because it's we're existing in the same tank. So that's a really lovely way to bring it all back to what you said in the beginning of the fish tank we're in. So I love this conversation we've had the final takeaway for the listeners, I ask the, the guest to either take a pressure off the listener. What would the pressure be that you would lift off them or a permission you want to give them? What would that be? I would give them permission to be as they are and that it's okay. And that hopefully, as you've just gleaned from this conversation, we are all showing up doing the best that we can. You know, no, nobody is out there nailing it in every single compartment and sphere of their lives. And what you see on the outside is often just a fraction. That's also to say, though, that we also don't have to apologize or feel shameful for our joy. And we're allowed to enjoy our lives. We're allowed to take pleasure from our experiences of being a mother and 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 being in this experience of motherhood that, you know, th this is it. Regardless of how many children we have, this moment we're at in our motherhood experience, this is it. And we deserve more as mothers collectively, as a culture, we deserve more individually, we deserve more. Our children deserve more, you know, they deserve to see us being who we actually are. So just take the breath out and know that you're not alone in this. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sophie. This has been fantastic. And yes, I have found pleasure from just sitting here that, you know, we can savor these moments of joy. And for me, I take joy out of giving out this podcast to people. And I know you do the same with your podcast. So where can people find you if they want to learn more about the work you do? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me here and for this conversation and for all of you listeners who are listening in on this conversation too. 
yeah, I have my own podcast that we've done an interview on. Um, it's called The Good Enough Mother and I'm on Instagram as Dr. Sophie Brock and my website the same and Facebook the same. Um, and yeah, check out my website and have a little browse through. I've got all sorts of information there about the social construction of motherhood um, if you'd like to dive a bit deeper. Fantastic. And yes, do go and check out The Good Enough Mother because yours truly was also on it a little while ago. So um, we will definitely love your thoughts around this episode. So thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you. I hope you found this conversation an interesting one. And bear with me if you are not actually a parent listening to this podcast, because there's so many concepts of this that is also relevant just for any woman. Even if you're not a parent, there is that pressure to be perfect. There is the pressure to be a superwoman who's holding herself small and not asking for the things that she needs. So I've been doing a lot of episodes around accepting and asking for help and also trusting that other people are there to help you. There will be other episodes coming up soon that are not about mothering, so do please bear with us. If you know another mother, someone maybe who's recently become a parent, who would find this episode helpful, please do me the favour of sharing this episode. There is so much shame and guilt and stigma around worrying about who you are as a mother, maybe not feeling good enough, maybe even regretting becoming a mother. We don't talk openly enough about how hard motherhood can be and how sometimes we have very mixed feelings about it. And that anger and guilt trap continues round and round. So do share this episode with anyone who you think would resonate. Maybe they also experience rage or anger and maybe they also feel embarrassed or upset with who they are as a mother at times. And until I speak to you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's gonna help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's the Thomas Connection .co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on the thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.